Drive-by cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Okay, and let's get down to it, boppers. It's Season 2, Episode 36 of Drive-by Cinema. I'm Rick, and this is Paul. Mooning at the camera for me. I'm glad I'm not on camera in this particular occasion. I'm going to do this entire podcast in mime. Is that okay? (laughs) It's a very Lynchian idea. Right, okay, yeah, very Lynchian idea. As We'll get on to it. Yeah, I'm Paul. This is Rick. Episode 36. Here we go, Richard. I mean, before we get on to David Lynch and whatnot, which I'm guessing our listeners now know is going to be the topic and the subject of today's podcast, and they should know anyway. Well, of course they do, because... Uh, they were listening last week. They know it's, and also, they're on our Discord channel, yeah. and they look at the weekly movies Discord channel to see what the next movie is going to be. Yes, in they do, don't they? That's what they do. Yeah, usually, unless it's two o'clock in the morning, and I tend to put a movie that we haven't agreed on on the Discord channel just randomly, just publish randomly. it to the world. Yeah. Yeah. Forcing us to watch it. Yes. This will get to later. No, well, I mean, assuming things are linear, then yes, you're right. Our viewers would know that this is episode 36 and we're going to be looking at a David Lynch film. But did we dream it? In the world of David Lynch, not everything goes in a straight line. Not not everything is as it seems. Listen, Paul. Yes. On the last episode. Uh Oh, no. Here we go. I, I made an off the cuff throwaway comment about 1986 being generally agreed. I made the claim that yeah. most people agree that 1986 was the best year. That that was the zenith, really. That's, that's a fair comment, I think, actually. Uh, well, you didn't disagree with no. me at the time, but you did ask for evidence, and I realised that I wasn't able. Reposting is not endorsement of any of Mitt Romney's views, if you look at my Facebook. In the same way, you know, asking for evidence is not a denial or refusal to accept what you were saying, Richard. No, I think you wanted to just share my excitement about yeah, 1986. And I wasn't able to cash out that demand at the time. I hadn't really prepared. I hadn't thought it through. I hadn't through. got the keys to the slots uh, for the coins in the laundromat. So I've reflected yeah. on my failure, and I've come back. Uh, Not a failure. A man in many ways. And I've done a little bit of research on what happened in 1986, which is not as easy as you might think it would be in this day and age. That's certainly probably easier than it would have been in, say, 1987. You have to go to the microfiche area of the library in 1987. Yeah. I did that one. Well, time. I lived it. So it's a way of storing um, lots of printed data, periodicals quite often, uh, in a compact form. They do it in newspapers as well, don't they? Where they take a picture with a film camera of the of the text that they're looking to record, page by page, I suppose. And then it gets miniaturized down onto a piece of celluloid. Yeah. Celluloid? Very James, celluloid. Bond. Very James Bond style. Yeah, it's super, super small. And it's so these end up at sheets about. Well, there's two types, aren't there? There's microfiche and there's yeah. microfilm. I'm, I, 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 microfiche are little sheets about, I don't know, four inches right. by six inches or something. And you put them on a special reader, which has a piece of glass that flattens it down. It shines up onto a big screen. It's, in front like, of it's like an overhead projector screen. for mice. <laughs> yeah. And then there's a microfilm, which is on a long That's reel, right, yeah. like a film. And you move left and right. It's usually used for newspapers that you can right, flick yeah. from year to yeah. year and stuff. Presumably it's all digital these days. But I, I have been working with a company who are still using microfiche for documents, actually. weirdly. Sure, until the place burns down or nobody has a microfiche reader True. anymore. Then what do you do? Get a magnifying glass and a jeweler's lens. <laughs> like Richard's going to start on people using paper as a means of recording data. Steady, move away, move away from the prize bowl. All matadors, <laughs> please, to the ring, to the ring. Sorry, go on, Richard. What were you looking up in the reference? Well, when you've got twelve and a half weeks of summer holiday, uh, the wooden drawers and the smells and all of that, and and the huge, you know, use the reference book, which was Marquis de Sade and nineteen eighty-six. Getting back to my, Sorry to my topic, enough of yours. What happened in 1986? Well, I've got a list now. Okay, now, not all of the things I'm going to say are necessarily good things, mm-hmm. but I don't think that's important for the best years. Some It has to be auspicious. Yes. So some things are big events have to be important. But some of these events are things 
that have direct reference to things we've talked about in this podcast, proving how important 1986 oh, is. Fire. The Channel Tunnel was agreed. It, like, the deal was signed. Ah, no, it see. wasn't built. It wasn't finished. But they did sign the deal. And if you remember, I don't know whether you do remember, but before this happened, people were talking about scare stories about why we didn't want a Channel Tunnel. There were two that I remember. One is, we could be invaded. Yeah. <laughs> through the tunnel. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think a moment's military strategic thought will tell you why that that's absolutely bonkers. <laughs> but the other one was that a rabid fox or other animal might come through the tunnel. <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, these are brave. These are brave defenses against, you know, uh, a multi-billion dollar <laughs> investments, aren't they? So, yeah, amazing that people were thinking along those lines. Presumably there's some kind of fence around the Channel Tunnel so a rabid fox can't get through. But we remain without rabies. Rabies, terrifying. Still exists in France. Now, Paul, do you remember the Jordan Peele horror movie called Us that we watched? It's the one with the shadow family that lives underground that comes and terrorises the real In a theme park. Yes, yeah, yeah, it's a good movie. Yeah. You may remember that that movie started in a year... 1986, with the Hands Across America happening in the US. That was a real event that really nearly sort of happened, yeah. 1986, Voyager 2 probed Uranus. I'm surprised you don't remember it, Paul. When did Challenger explode? That was 86 also, wasn't it? 1986. I remember. Challenger explode. That's so Proustian for me. I remember that. Like, I remember the wet on the windscreen of my friend's dad's four Granada. 2.8 2.8 gear. G-H-I-A. What was it? Why were cars called gear back then? I don't know why. But they were. I don't know. I don't know. That's uh, a good question. Because they had that sort of, uh, do you know the Sweeney and the Granada there? Like the smooth vinyl, the smooth yes. vinyl roof that was sophisticated and sporty back then. <laughs> like it was like a leather effect roof, but made of PVC or something. Huge cars, Granadas. And I, I remember because we'd just gone over country road with like a huge roller coaster effect and we just got airborne and i got like the butterflies in my tummy and then the ra- on the radio through the wind of the was that your first yes, orgasm through the wind of the rain uh <laughs> came the news that the challenger had exploded so i remember it like 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 that crystal clear you know flashbulb moment yeah my, um this was a year the only year in our lifetime where Ho- haley's comet was visible Hawley's comet haley's wow comet. Busy year for Microsoft, Patrick, you know, I, Patrick, uh, Patrick Guinness Book of Records. Microsoft IPO occurred. This was when you could buy shares oh in Microsoft for the first time. Sadly, Chernobyl happened. Um, Back to the future. 1986 was a World Cup year. Hand of God. Hand of God. That's right. Maradona knocked us out. Argentina. You're right. Back to the future. Actually, December 1985, but it's still it's 1986, still really. Yeah. It's close enough. Goonies was November. Oh, that is a classic, classic movie that's sadly been forgotten. Also, I had a bit of a pash. I had a huge, actually, I had a massive crush on the Vietnamese boy in the Goonies. I don't know why. <laughs> it was just unhealthy. Anyway, sorry, go on, carry on, Richard. I think that is possibly troubling. For <laughs> no, I, well, I don't think it was for, you know, for wide brim hat wearing reasons. You've said enough, Paul. Uh, <laughs> 1986, the Big Mac Index, which we've mentioned invented. on this podcast, was established by The Economist. Yeah, The M25 opened 1986, London's only quasi-orbital motorway. I suppose you'd only need one, wouldn't you? 1986, the culmination of Zamo's Just Say No oh campaign on Grange Hill. Zamo was so cool. Nikem Stereo so- TV. <laughs> no. Well, before he became Nikem Stereo TV broadcasts. Nikem Stereo TV broadcasts began 1986. Yeah. Stereo on your TV for the first time. Channel 4 introduced the red triangle warning. A symbol... <laughs> Mural Grey was going to be opinionated about politics. So, well, it was so that you knew whether it was worth staying oh, up for oh, the late Mural, Mural Grey wasn't on there, but it was worth watching. Right, okay. She was everywhere on Channel 4. 1986, Yorkshire TV became 24 hours. This was when late-night TV started in 1986. What you meant is they put the CFAX on for the job adverts for four hours. Nah, ah, ah, ah. In 1986, BBC One starts its first full daytime service, not pages from CFAX, which feels like it needs an entire explanation in and of itself, doesn't it? I prefer Oracle. No, I prefer the Channel 4 one, which is really, <laughs> really kind of... It was hip and swinging it down with the kids. 
1986, here's something else we've mentioned on the podcast. Noel Edmonds on the Late Late Breakfast Show accidentally kills Michael Lush in a stunt. I don't think you said Noel killed him. Did he press the button? <laughs> no. The other great television, The Singing Detective, Lovejoy, Casualty, Roland Rat, Joss's Giants, Bread, The Triple. All of these TV programmes started in 1986. The Today newspaper, the first computer published and full colour newspaper, started in 1986. Yeah. GCSEs replaced O levels and CSEs. Richard Dawkins published The Blind Watchmaker, 1986. Sure, continuations of things, I think, is really what important to notice here. It's like, you know, uh, Mr. Motivator would have been on TV. Timmy Mallet maybe would have got it started, you know. I mean, breakfast TV was just amazing. I used to get up early for it just to watch breakfast TV. It was so exciting. Anyway, this is starting to turn out like one of those programs where they get a load of B-list celebrities to talk about, you know, a year in the past. yeah. yeah. I just, I just wanted to prove that 1986 really was a good year, if not the best. And there we are. Reach for the stars. Hey, Paul, shall we talk about a David Lynch movie? Sorry, have we not got any corrections apart from... apart from? No, we're perfect. Perfection has been achieved. Really? Well, maybe you can think on that and reflect. Face maybe when you come up with it, we'll... Yeah. Until then, it's time for... It's time for some music. Blue Velvet. You're blaming this on me, aren't you? This I am. I think George suggested a bunch of potential David Lynch movies. Yeah. This is a David Lynch movie. It's a spin-off, really, of Twin Peaks. It was originally how it. Yeah, it was going to be a TV series, but can you explain that in detail, Richard? Because it's something I just found out researching it, and I'm still not really clear how it's a spin-off of Twin Peaks. We're talking, of course, yeah. about the fabulous movie Mulholland Drive. Yeah, I'll give you my understanding of it, which is almost certainly wrong, and it's quite confusing. But I think Lynch wrote this for one of the characters, maybe one or two of the characters in Twin Peaks. I think the one played by Sherilyn Fenn. She right. was going to be one of the two stars in this movie, not clear which one. It was intended to be... A sort of, I think, an extended length first episode, like a longer pilot or a feature length first That's episode. That's right, yeah. Followed by a television series. But the TV network that was backing it got cold feet and pulled out and leaving the movie unfinished and no television series. So it was picked up by Studio Canal and they gave Lynch the money to finish the movie off. And what he did was well, he wrote... it wasn't a movie though, was it? No, to, 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 to stitch it together and make a movie out of what he shot is that would that be fair to that's say? That's right. Well, so really, what he did was compress the rest of the series into the second bit of the movie. Hence, it might seem that this 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 film is full of vignettes that don't go anywhere. I think in the original TV series they would have gone somewhere. Does that make sense? Maybe. I happen to think <clears throat> my hunch is that actually this is it was much better as a film. And that as a TV series, it may have been excessively self-indulgent. But I what, think David film- Lynch? What do you mean? No. Because, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, when when the TV company, the US company, cancelled it, obviously David's like, that's okay. I've got some really interesting stuff I can do with rabbits instead, you know. So <laughs> he went off to do that. Years uh, later. Not indulgent at all. But the thing about rabbits, David Lynch's rabbits, is he makes this thing about where film doesn't follow the prescriptions and the tropes of film, and has a heightened sense of wonder about it or weirdness about it. That he really sort of he really tweaks on that nipple kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? And rabbits does that. He's like YouTube experiments in saying nothing can doing nothing. Like, and in this movie too, we'll get into it. I guess there's a weirdness about it. And Twin Peaks, of course, was famous for talking forwards, the stuff that was going to be played backwards when you reversed it to get backwards, forwards, backwards talk kind of thing from dwarves. And he does this stuff where he kind of makes people talk in a very staged kind of B-movie style. 
to make things ultra weird um, generally. And the weirdness doesn't start with this one. But sorry, Richard, continue what you with what you're going to say. 2010, it was made. Yeah. Mulholland Holland Drive. No, 2001, Richard. Oh, right. <laughs> but not as old as yeah, 2000. Not as old as Blue Velvet, 1986, and not as old as Wild at Heart, which is one I would have elected to watch if you'd let me choose. Which is 1990, starring the erstwhile and wonderful Nicholas Underacting Cage. Okay, I, I apologise. Listen, I hadn't seen Mulholland Drive. So I have you seen see Eraserhead? It. Yes, I think I have. Oh, okay, but we can we can add that to the list. Well, please don't. Have, did you see Twin Peaks then, Paul? Were you a Twin Peaky? Listen, okay. Fine. Can I? I'll get to that in a second. Okay. Oh, okay. But you know, David Lynch is still highly respected. Whatever happened to David Cronenberg? That's my question. Because he was like really up there with David Lynch as like king of weird and king of cool, but then just kind of disappeared, didn't he? He started making beer, didn't he? This lager. <laughs> You're asking me. You did like Twin Peaks, though, didn't you? I did quite like Twin Peaks, although... There are some things I loved about Twin Peaks. You know, the the native Indian Bob, just terrifying. I just, the way he moves so fast and like the cheap but really effective camera trick that Lynch used to, to make him seem much more terrifying than he was. Yeah. Brilliant. The backwards talking dwarf that's actually talking forwards, that's just so inventive and fabulous. Uh, the slow kind of dripsy style of it all. Uh, no. The B movie kind of schlock story, but it's actually quite well crafted. You know, all of that I loved. Uh, the same guy did the music for Mulholland Drive as did the Twin Peaks music. Right. Yeah, and the music too. So it was lots I loved about Twin Peaks. What I didn't like the fact was it it went on longer than yes, it outstayed its welcome. Yeah. Initially, it was breathtaking just because mm. there was nothing different. else quite like it. Yeah, just completely different. Yeah. Uh, so I think uh, exactly for the reason you said you didn't like Twin Peaks for it outstaying its welcome. I think Mulholland Drive benefits from being compressed into a single movie, not a full Forcibly series. so, yeah. <laughs> Fitted into its two and a half hour straitjacket. Yeah. This is a very well-regarded movie, Paul. It's got high scores. Uh, it's, it's, it's scores are off the chart almost, you know. It's like they're in nine out of ten territory, you know. And, so yeah. best explain it then. Naomi Watts oh, God. stars. Ow. Naomi Watts stars, and she is uh, an, an aspiring actress. Actually, the film starts, let's be honest, with uh, people doing the jitterbug. I thought it was a Lindy Hop, but it was the jitterbug. I don't know the difference. Do you know the difference? I kind of know. dance anyway, isn't it? And it's intercut with... It's quite a stylistic opening. It's intercut with scenes of like a, a young actress and flashbulbs going off and stuff like that. Uh, and then we see the titles over shots of a limousine driving through Beverly Hills at night. Yeah. And there's a rather beautiful brunette in the back of the limousine. And the car the car stops and she seems irritated by it and says that we, do, we don't stop here. And the guys, there's two men in the front of the car and they turn around. And I think one of them has a gun and he says, you know, get out kind of thing. And she, the door gets opened and just as she's going to get out and it looks like she's going to be assassinated on the roadside. A couple of cars are chasing down the street. This is so David Lynch. There's a head-on collision with this part limousine. We see the aftermath, which is the cars are wrecked. Um, The woman seems to have survived and she gets out dazed. From the there would be the assassins are dead. Yeah, fairly high up in Beverly Hills, so she can see L.A. out before her. Sunset Boulevard, I think, is the main track she can see. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, because I think Sunset Boulevard runs up to Mulholland Drive. These are all real well, roads. See, I mean, way. Mulholland Drive itself is really, really extensive. Long uh, is yeah, but the bit that's in long Beverly Hills trail, but the bits in Forest Trail does look directly down onto Sunset Boulevard. I think. So she staggers off down into the undergrowth. Toward the lights of LA. Doesn't meet Columbo on the way up. Well, two LAPD t- detectives do arrive now. And you might think, yeah. Twin Peaks like, we're going to stick with these guys like you do with Agent Cooper in uh, Twin Peaks. And they're standing there looking at the scene and the play very deadpan. Uh, and I'm like, something's not right here. 
One of them holds up a pearl necklace that they found in the back of the car, in the back of the limo. It's not obvious where that's from because it obviously wasn't the joyriding kids and it's not obviously not from the guys. So I think maybe someone else was in there. But we never see these detectives again, I don't think. That's no. it. Don't get too attached Because the to surrealism them. starts, the neo-noir surrealism starts right now and these guys are just far too Columbo. Why do detectives, especially called out in the middle of the night to a road traffic accident, why do they wear a shirt and tie? I don't know. <laughs> are you not a fan of Columbo? He, he's like the one... Like, if you watch Starsky and Hutch or California Highway Patrol these days, and I do watch quite a lot of this sort of stuff, like, like it's unwatchable, but Columbo remains... Although it's fabulously dated compared to the other stuff from the early, late 70s, early 80s, it remains really good TV. It's really well plotted, actually. Well, his hallmark, his technique is he's about to leave, isn't he? And then he always has one last zinger. So the brunette woman who escaped from the road traffic, well, escaped the assassination. Let me start that again. So the brunette woman who escaped her assassination attempt is now down near a house, somewhere, somewhere a bit lower down in Beverly Hills, and she uh-huh. sees the house owner leaving, getting into a taxi with a big case. It's the morning by now, isn't it, I think? That's right. And obviously she must be leaving for a while, so she takes the opportunity to sneak into the house while they're getting something else from inside. Um, she's still dazed, she's got... The homeowner does see her doing this, but doesn't actually react in any kind of way, weirdly. Is that right? Yeah. Oh. Which we'll understand later on. We will understand that later on, I think. Now, the next scene that happens, probably one of the most remarked on scenes in the entire film. And it's a very Lynchian scene. We've got two guys in a diner. Oh, yeah. Oh, I forgot about this. This is hilarious. One guy is telling the other guy about a dream that he had. A dream That's of meeting right. him here in this diner. That's so legit here. Yeah. Uh, but he, he's clearly shook up about this dream. It's possibly a nightmare. nightmare. Uh, and or a waking he des- nightmare. He describes the hideous face of a guy around the back of the diner. And basically what happens now over the next few minutes is... He, he breaks up a cold courage. sweat. He, yeah, he, he gets up the courage to go and have a look for this guy, particularly as things seem to be happening exactly as they were happening in yeah. the dream he described. But amazing lighting and makeup, you know, the cold sweat, it just comes across as one of those brutal black and white movies where people are breaking into cold sweats, you know. There's so much echoing of classic Hollywood going on here in this movie. It's, it's crazy. Absolutely. I mean, Lynch obviously really loves Hollywood. You know, he's in love with Hollywood in many ways. Yeah. And it, this is a masterpiece in building tension because we don't really know what he's going to see. And it's very weird that he seems to be experiencing his dream. And he is clearly so shook up by it all. Yeah. You cannot help but empathise and feel real tension in this scene. And it's really very low-key. And what happens when they walk outside and they walk past this concrete wall and I think this is supposed to be Denny's Diner, which again is a real place, but it's not called that in here. It's called Winkies or something, isn't it? Gets to the end of this this concrete wall near the diner, and from the other side of it comes this really weird guy, who I think is we're supposed to take as a hobo, a homeless guy, but he's got a sort of a I don't know. He's face. kind of he's he's more preternatural than that, isn't he? He's kind of like something from like a caveman, from a Grimm's a grim story kind of thing. Really weird. It is weird. It reminds me of Papa Lazarou in the League of Gentlemen. <laughs> Very much so, yeah. But it's slightly more terrifying, I think. And that's it. The scene cuts pretty much at that point, and. Yeah. Again, we, we don't really see these guys again. Well, we see one guy once more, but that, we'll come to that later. The meaning of that scene... We do go back scene, to the cafe, though, don't we? We go we back do to many the times, several times, yeah. It's important. It's an important location. But the meaning of that scene in this movie is, is discussed and rediscussed and debated all over the place, and it's quite an interesting theory. I will maybe speak about that in a bit. There's then a bunch of phone calls happening on landlines, Obviously, this is back before, before again, cell phones and smartphones were popular, of people discussing the missing girl. 
And we often see like a phone ringing next to a red lampshade, a red lamp. Well, it's an important thing. David Lynch mentions about 10 things to look out for. In the he movie. does. I'm looking at those right now. David Lynch's 10 clues for unlocking this thriller. And which one, which number is the red lamp shade? Red. Number two. Now Naomi Watts arrives. This is Betty. She's blonde. She's perky. She's an actress, aspiring actress. And she's come to the house that we saw earlier because her aunt is letting her stay there in Hollywood to further her career while her aunt goes off somewhere else to make movies in Canada or something. And obviously we know that this brunette woman is in this house, but Naomi, sorry, uh, Betty has no idea at the moment. We also cut as well to uh, a young chap. This is Adam, a director, played by... Played by Justin oh, Theroux, Paul. Justin Theroux, yeah, amazing. The cousin of Louis Theroux. Also married to or engaged to Jennifer Aniston. I'm not sure which one that is. Whoa, really? Yeah. He's having a meeting with studio execs at somewhere called Ryan Entertainment. Now, he's kind of playing himself here because do you know... Which movie he famously wrote the screenplay for? I don't. Very funny. Star Tom Cruise in drag kind of thing. Tropic Thunder. Really? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's a funny well, movie, uh, whether you like uh, it or not. It it's is, a funny movie. Now, they're trying to force Adam, the director, to cast a particular woman uh, in the in a role in his film. He's not happy about this. He wants creative freedom, but the studio are intervening. And there's this bizarre scene, bizarre scene, where the, the, the studio execs are a bit like mafia boss kind of, mobster kind of guys. But they're very keen, the studio guys, people are very keen to please these money guys, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And at one point they're talking about the coffee. Apparently they'd messed up the coffee order one time. This time they're going to get it right, apparently. And they bring in like an espresso to this guy. He takes a sip of his espresso. And then and lets all the coffee out onto the napkin, on the desk. Really bizarre. So many potential meanings in this. But anyway, as a consequence of this interference, Adam goes outside, gets a golf club, and he smashes up the limousine of the money guys there. Well, which apparently apparently is uh, a sort of retelling of something that Jack Nicholson did. Right, okay, so Adam's thrown his fit, and then we cut to, I think, which to what is the funniest scene in, well, it's not a funny movie, but there are some, there are some scenes that are played for laughs, which, which is the hitman, who just, who does things horribly wrong, and just like, bizarre, just weird knock-on effects and coincidences, and, and you know, errors, prob- propagating errors kind of thing. Is where Joe, a leather jacket clad ruffian, is meeting up with some other guy and uh, he basically is a hit. He kills him <laughs> ostensibly for the get a black, black book. book of phone numbers. <laughs> and I think we're to infer that he needs that black book because he needs, later on we find out that he's going to be killing a woman and uh. her name is in that book. But it's not obvious at this stage. But it, he accidentally shoots his gun, doesn't he, whilst he's bending down or doing something. That's right, yeah. And it goes through the wall, and you hear a scream on the other side. He goes out and investigates. <laughs> and there's some lead in the ass. <laughs> she says, I got bit by something. <laughs> I got bit by something big. <laughs> he takes the opportunity to restrain her and try and strangle her, but she's gigantic and sort of, you know, he falls she's underneath her. Yeah. You know, as she's, she's like a foul tree kind of thing. And of course, there's a guy with a, with a hoover in the, in the corridor that discovers him. So he's got to try and murder that guy too. I was reminded of two things, which is Magnolia, a movie I think I forced you to watch under protest uh, about weird coincidences. But also, uh, Douglas Adams, I don't know which one got to got to become a series on Netflix. Dirk Gently. Is it Dirk Gently? The American version, okay, with so- the weird, wild, wild, wild-haired sort of uh, female protagonist who sort of murders people by accident kind of thing. Coincidences are very important in Dirk Gently, yeah, yeah. Back with Naomi, back with Betty, 
she's phoning her aunt and she's having to tell her aunt about this woman that she's found in her place. And this brunette woman who was in the accident, she's said that her name is Rita, but she's obviously seen a poster of Rita Hayward on the wall. Seemingly, she's got amnesia. Presume We presume it's caused by a head injury during the accident. When she opens the bag up, well, yeah. It's fat stacks of Benjamins are in there. Lots of money. And a blue key. And a weird blue key. Kind of triangular kind of blue key. Very strange. It cuts to Adam, who's learning, I think, from his assistant that all the crew have been fired. And he gets home and he finds his wife in bed with the pool cleaner. Yeah. So he grabs his wife's jewellery box and pours pink paint into it. Meanwhile, Rita and Betty are on the trail of this mystery. Where did this money come from? What's this key for? And they wind up at the diners, the same diners we saw earlier. And ah. they're being served by a woman named Diane, Diana Selwyn or Diane Selwyn. And this jogs Rita's memory. She recognises that name. So they go back home, they look it up in the phone book, and they try calling that number. And they hear a voice which Rita doesn't recognise as her own, so it's obviously not her name. And then she's like, his PA says, oh, by the way, your credit cards don't work. And the hotel owner says, oh, your credit cards don't work either. And by the way, whoever's after you, no, they know that you're here kind of thing. So it's all very weird. He's like, how is that possible? Well, it's plainly impossible. But yeah, so she says, hey, come and stay with me. And he turns her down, and I'm not sure where he goes instead. Where does he go? No, he goes to see the cowboy. He does go and see the cowboy, yeah. The mysteriously named cowboy. And I think it's at the top of Sunset Boulevard up in the hills, I think. That's right, yeah. But meanwhile, Betty and Rita are rehearsing. Re- uh, Betty's got an audition coming up, so they're rehearsing a script in the kitchen. And then Betty goes for this really awkward pre-Weinstein audition. <laughs> that was so beautifully shot, wasn't it? Beautifully shot. Again, the sense of awkwardness is absolutely palpable. There's And it's a, a small room packed with people. <laughs> it's just so uncomfortable. It's just mind-bogglingly sort of skin-crawlingly awkward here. Yeah. So there's this older guy producer... He introduces a director and his assistant sitting on a bar stool or something or a chair, very small room. There's an actor who must be pushing 70s, certainly in his 60s, called Hank or something. She's going to be playing opposite in this audition. And there's also weirdly uh, a casting agent and her assistant. He moves in, leans in for a lecherous kiss. This, you know, aging aging guy kissing this very young uh, Hollywood hopeful starlet. So she goes out of there and the casting agent woman comes with her, explains her history, that she's the ex-wife, blah, blah, blah. And then she takes Betty to see the hottest new director. She's saying, those are has-beens, you know, don't, don't worry about those. Let's go and see this hot new director guy doing the, the best new film. She goes across the road to the Paramount Studios, I think, and She's taking her to see Adam, who is on the set. They've got like a sound booth studio set up with microphones. They've got backing singers and they've got a woman singing. (laughs) Presumably this is a musical then, I don't know. It doesn't seem like an ordinary audition. Who I think happens to be the woman that's auditioned just before Betty arrives. That's right. Yeah. And she's called Camilla, Camilla Rhodes, I believe. Was she being, being, I don't know, was she being played by the same actress that plays Peter? No, no, she Um, wasn't. Because that's something something I didn't like about the movie. (laughs) Okay, we'll come back to that. But before she gets a chance to actually speak to Adam, Betty insists that she's got to run off. She's arranged with Rita that she's going to go to a particular address. I think of this Diane Selwyn woman. That's right, yeah. Number 17 or number 12, whatever. I can't remember. So she rushes off to meet Rita instead of following her dream and meeting Adam. And this is hinting at the fact that Betty seems to have taken a shine to Rita in some senses. She seems to have really got to know her and to start liking her, which is why when she phoned her aunt 
and obviously said to her aunt, there's someone in your house, isn't that weird? And her aunt was saying, you know, call the cops, you know, get her out of there. She was saying, no, she's okay, you know, she... So they go around the back. I didn't know American homes had back alleys, like UK homes, but they do. Well, this particular home they go to, you know, I think I read somewhere it was built by the Disney Corporation. It, wow, I was going to say Lynch chose some really, really amazing locations. Like yeah. her aunt's home is just like, you'd imagine, like like the uh, the gatekeeper or the, the housekeeper of the complex is, is like Lisa Minnelli in another universe kind of thing. Yes. You know, it's, it's just so Hollywood. It's just, he's just chosen perfect locations to sort of, to sort of express that that's kind of uh, very well well appointed, uh, lavish, but kind of slightly understated sort of artsy kind of left fieldness that Hollywood sort of embodies, you know. And this second location is yeah. I was I was thinking, wow, how's he chosen that? How's he found it? Well, obviously there's a big there's big big, big pickings up there in Hollywood Hills and there for like weird locations. But sorry, Richard, continue. It's an amazing. Well, apparently, place. apparently it was designed by Disney set designers. That's why it looks a bit ah. like Swiss cottagey type stuff. Yeah. But it's great for the gothic themes that are going to sort of sort of unfold there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So they go to the wrong place, basically. They knock on the door of the address that they'd got, hoping to speak with this Diane person. But there's another woman there who says, no, actually, I swapped apartments. I've swapped places with Diane. And so she's now in 18 or 17, just down the way there. So they go there. Nobody seems to be in. Betty emboldened climbs through the window whilst Weta is yeah. think, telling her not to. That's crazy. There's clearly a terrible smell in the house. She's going to the front door to let Rita in so they can both have a search around. They're both holding their noses and stuff. And they find in the bedroom a, a dead body, clearly been dead for a while, it's clearly smelling, and the, the face is, you know, horribly... Right, can I just stop you here, Richard? Yeah, okay. So how do they dispose of the body, or do we just cut to another scene? Well, they don't dispose of the body. It's not their problem, is it? They just get out of there, I believe. Oh, they get out of there, okay. So they go back home at this point. But wait, 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 slow down. But then the girl who swats pumps comes into the apartment and she doesn't smell anything. Huh. Interesting. Because she comes to pick up an ashtray, doesn't she? Do you remember? Yes. And the ashtray, have a look at your list of 10 things, Paul. Oh, God. What? (laughs) (laughs) Go on. What number is the ashtray? Oh, no. Oh, notice the robe, the ashtray, the coffee cup. Yeah, I've noticed the ashtray. And what about it? It's an ashtray. He's so he's just so not helpful with his clues, is he? So they go back home and Rita and Betty have sex. Yeah, they do. Rita starts speaking Spanish. She calls yeah. it Silencio. They work out that it's a club called Silencio. And they so find they out where it is. They go there and there's a number of acts. There's a guy seemingly talking about... It, it's like an avant-garde art performance, isn't it? And there's a guy talking about... It's also like a David Lynch film in miniature. Yeah, surely. It's a theatre. They're sitting in the theatre of this club. I don't know what the relationship between clubs and theatres is, but there we are. And they're watching this guy on stage, and he's talking about artificial and superficiality of of Hollywood. There's music the representation becomes a reality. That kind of thing. He's also saying he's, he's saying in many languages, this is all an illusion. Betty seems to have some kind of a fit. She starts shaking violently at one point. And at the end of which, she picks up a bag, possibly to get tissues out or something, and there's a blue cube, oh, a solid fine. metal blue cube with a keyhole in it, in the bag. So, obviously, they return to her aunt's house. It's not Lloyd Gross was saying, who lives in a theatre like this? Anyway, so... David Lynch, obviously. They go back to her aunt's house to find the key that they'd stashed along with all the money. Now, this is quite weird, and again, Lynchian, but again, very meaningful. The two of them are in the bedroom, and they hidden it in a hat box earlier. And uh, Rita reaches up to grab the hat box and put it on a bed, and Betty was behind her. And then when she turns around, Betty is gone. She disappeared. She calls out. That was the point that disappeared. Right, okay. She couldn't Rita. see Betty anywhere. And obviously she's shocked, but she carries on. She gets the key out and she unlocks 
the box. Wow. And what happens then? <laughs> it's not Pandora's box. I was expecting, you know, elves and werewolves to jump out, but it's not. Uh, no metaphysical fantasy occurs. Uh, then I think we kind of cut to real life, don't we? So, important thing I here think. is I think... This is 80% of the movie we're through now. 80% of it is a dreamscape. Can I just plot spoil here, Richard, at this point? We're in a dream, want. yeah. So... And I think Blackadder did it so much better, didn't they? When she opened the box, the camera goes into the, the open box, uh, into the dark space. So I think we're to assume that we're going into reality from the dream, maybe. Because the camera went into the pillow at the beginning of the movie. Yes, that's right. When she, when she took, as we'll find out, a lot of sedatives and you know fell on her bed into a coma or, or a drug-induced stupor, that's when we went into the dream, you see. So we then see the cowboy guy that Adam had gone to see. And he's trying to rouse a girl, knocking on a door. There's a girl on the bed in the position of a, the same position of the corpse that we saw earlier. And it's Betty apparently waking up from the knocking. Although yeah, I think. I got really confused. I only realised all this later when I read the note saying, ah, at this point it becomes reality. I, when I was watching this for the first time, and I only watched the second part of it, second part of it for a second time, I just was completely confused about the real life Betty and the dream Betty and all this nonsense. <laughs> Understandably. I just didn't, I didn't get it at all. Just well, over my head. It's at this point that Diane's neighbour comes to, to take back her belongings, and she, I think that includes the ashtray. Oh, okay, it happens then. Out of the dream. Okay. And then she sees Camilla, I think possibly in flashback. We're seeing that she's horridly in love with this woman called Camilla. Camilla is Rita. Is Rita, yeah. The girl from the limousine, the girl with amnesia. And, and she's Betty isn't called Betty now. What's Betty called now? She's called Diane, I think. Diane. And she's observing Camilla and Adam, and clearly... Camilla's been cast in Adam's film. And Adam and Camilla clearly have a, a lot of chemistry together. They're getting it on together whilst wow. they're filming. She's jealous. Well, come on, how would you feel? You, like, you, you've come to Hollywood together. You're both aspiring actresses. Well, admittedly, Camilla's more successful than you. Maybe she's taking on her wing, you know. But then she just ditches you yeah. and your relationship for the director. Well, this and- is the next thing that happens. We see a scene now where it's Diane, the the blonde woman, in the same limousine that we saw the Rita character in earlier, driving up Mulholland Drive. And it stops in exactly the same place that we saw it stop the first time. But no car crash. And the guy turns around and she's saying, we don't stop here. A guy in the front turns around. He's not got a gun though, I think. He says, you know, please get out here as a surprise or something. And, and the door opens, and Camilla, her friend, stroke lover, is outside the car, and she's saying, you know, I'll lead you up a secret way. So they go up a secret way. The mountain. Apparently this is significant. I don't understand how. But there you go. <laughs> so they wind up, having gone back up there, to what is clearly Adam's house. Uh-huh. The back of Adam Adam's house, you know, the huge glass thing. And there's a party going on, and... Uh, she's being introduced to Adam and various people. Again, there's a lot of awkward jealousy going on. There's clearly a thing between Adam and Camilla. And as it turns out, at the meal, Adam and Camilla are getting ready to announce their engagement. And clearly, Diane is distraught. So, next scene is we see her in the diner. And she's meeting Joe, the the slimy assassin guy. And she's passing a photograph of Camilla over. On the and the table. stack of money that's hers and not Rita's. Yeah. The waitress's name, ironically, turns out to be Betty as she pours the coffee. So it's as if it swapped dream to real life. She became Betty in the dream. And the... Betty's probably serving coffee while she's aspiring to be famous, you see, so... That's right. And the Joe the Hitman says to her, he shows her a blue key on his key ring, and he says, 
when it's finished, you'll find this where I told you. And she says, what is it open? And he kind of laughs. Because really, it's just his, his way of indicating he's com- you know completed the job without... Yeah, without it. using phone lines or without using electronic communication or, or paper communication. He's a professional. He's not the bumbling idiot that we see in her dream. And of, of course, there are several scenes where we see that key in Diane's possession. So you know that he's committed this this murder. Yeah. That's the, the symbol of it. But one of the key things about this scene is we we see one of those two guys from that weird scene near the start of the movie. Mm-hmm. He's standing in the coffee shop, I think, at the at the counter, or trying to pay or something. And he looks over and he catches Diane's eye just as she has handed the money over and basically said, "Yeah, I know it's, you know, I, I know once you, once I've given you this and you've done it, I know it's too late," kind of thing. And she's got a look on her face of kind of grim determination and murderous intent or whatever. I don't know. Well, it's a, she certainly carries a, a look on her face. And this guy catches her eye. And so I think an explanation I've seen of this is that at that very moment, that male character in this sequence, he witnesses the transaction and r- recognises his murderous horror in her face. And so, in the dream, Diane, as Betty, is trying to square away her guilt. And she's yes. figuring out a way in a dream of Camilla escaping the assassination and through her amnesia, reconnecting with Diane. But she remembers wow. that man in Winky's diner who knows her to be a monster. He's seen her monst- monstrous side. And she needs to explain why he was looking so fearfully at her. And so in a dream, when she transposes her evil, uh, it, he is, she's assuming that he wasn't looking at her. He was looking through her to this monster behind the wall. Oh, that's very neatly explained, isn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, how you get that from looking at the movie one time, I don't know. You don't, and that's the problem we're going to come on to. Can I just say, Blackadder did Dream in a Dream really well, where, of course, you know, he wakes up and says, oh, it was all a dream, and then... He says, you know, because obviously you wouldn't turn into a wolf if this is still not a dream. And of course, somebody turns into a wolf or a werewolf or that kind of thing. Do you remember that one? You must remember it, Richard. Well, that in itself is a sort of riff on American Werewolf in London. Is it? Which has an extremely scary sequence in it. I don't know whether you remember this. I think we've got to just close this out, the very end of the movie, where Diane is wrecked in guilt and... I think in her imagination, she's being assailed by this elderly couple who I think were judges of her jitterbug competition and who they sort of packed her off to Hollywood to go and live a dream. And I guess they represent her guilt in some sense, but she can't take it anymore. She can't take the guilt. The blue key is on the table. She picks up a gun on her bedside and she shoots herself lying in exactly the place that we saw the corpse in her dream. I think, you know, you just, the explanation of, uh, the guy at the counter in the diner is great because it was, it hits on something I was going to say in a more general sense about the movie, which is, I think Lynch is exploring the subconscious of not guilt, but also the mechanism that the imaginative dream mechanism we use to deny what we've done. Yeah. And yet how things appear in that that don't allow us to continue our self-deception. Well, look, I think you're touching on the fact that this is laden with meaning. And so open to interpretation. Lynch himself, of course, famously does not like to give his own interpretation. He wants people to, first of all, project their own ideas onto it. He clearly Just 10 has, clues. He clearly does have authorial intent, and so hence he can give those 10 clues, yeah. The other thing is, just like in Twin Peaks, he is a master of presenting a dream world and a dream world that feels like a dream. Yes. And when you realise that the first two hours or whatever it is of this movie are a dream, it starts to make a lot more sense because yeah. otherwise so much of it makes no sense at all. Like that or that, that um, audition. Why would all those people be there doing that in that way? <laughs> well, they'll be singing backing. Why they be professional backing singers? In yeah, in that second audition, nuts. yeah. Um, 
Uh, you know, I said that Lynch loves Hollywood. I'm sure I believe that is true. I think he does love Hollywood. And I think he's got special affection for the golden age of Hollywood that the ant represents, right? Yeah. You know. The ant's house with Rita Hayward's poster. Oh. She's of that era. She's golden era Hollywood. But the other thing about this film is it's clearly a, a savage criti- critique of Hollywood and the Weinstein-y culture. Um, and because and this is before and also I think of uh, the eroticization or the intellectual eroticization of, of Hollywood and the film industry in general. I think you know the idea that it, that it is something to aspire to. I think Lynch is maybe questioning that in some sort of way. Rita or Camilla, as it were, represents oh. the casting couch. Um, so clearly, there's starlets being given parts according to some shadowy cartel that's running the thing that telling the director to a point but ultimately you know camilla gets the role in the movie because she becomes an item with adam yes and you know that that end sequence of the movie the theory is you you're also not seeing diane um that the, the betty or diane that's shown in the film by naomi watts is just a projection of the naive bit of the character of Diane. And that even the bit that you think is the real bit at the end after the dream is still just, I think the theory is she doesn't kill herself, actually. What's dying at the end is simply the hopes and dreams, the naive Uh. hopes and dreams of Diane. Diana probably, therefore, is the neighbour who swapped apartments, which, if you think about it, is bizarre in itself or was probably living with Camilla or something. And so the bit that we see die, the Diane that we see die, is just her dream of, you know, making it big in Hollywood. That's come to an end. The cowboy in this is old Hollywood. He's literally the Western star. And he's kind of calling the shots, really. He's telling everybody who gets the roles in a way. Uh, And he sort of represents the golden era of Hollywood. And you'd like to think perhaps that the casting couch stuff didn't go on in the golden era, but of course it did. And all of those golden era starlets were were doing it. There's no sense that this is storytelling in any sense whatsoever. And particularly, there's no sense that this is a story that's being told or recounted as opposed to, you know, shown or reenacted. That's a problem, I think, because whether it's just Dreamscape or whether it is you know, a neo-noir murder mystery or mystery or thriller. Yeah. I mean, there, there is no spotlight of exposition on any of the supposedly or potentially pivotal events, you know. I mean, this is how it differs from Conan Doyle. And I appreciate Lynch is asking us to be dynamic and on movie, movie, movie watch, which is a great thing. But it, I, for me, there has to be some sort of input from him that's more explicit and that doesn't make us do all the heavy lifting as we ha- inevitably have to do with this movie. Well, I think that brings us to a score then, Paul. You mm. seem to be trying to sum it up in terms of that. Yeah. You want to do acting, do you? The acting was great, yeah. Uh, it's acting about acting and it's acting about people feeling awkward about acting kind of thing. Uh and then there's all this weird dreamy stuff. Uh, eight and a half. I can't really fault the acting. I thought it was good. I like the direction that Lynch has given to make it all weird and dreamy. Uh, particularly like the old school kind of mannerisms in the first section where people are talking in a really old fashioned way. And like the hitmen are really not, not of the era 2000 kind of thing. I thought that was all really well done. That kind of jerky weirdness to it all. Naomi Watts. I think. When she did the original bit of film that was going to be the first half before the TV series, all of that was as sort of chirpy Betty. Yes. And I don't think she liked that. I think she found that difficult. Uh, and I think they found the love scenes difficult and all that stuff. When she starts being the darker Diane, the, the awoke yeah. Diane, murdering her girlfriend, she she's absolutely brilliant. And she comes into like switch her I did like the switch, yeah. I think it's amazing. Uh, so, yeah, for acting, I'll certainly give it an eight, maybe a nine. What about the plot line, uh, as it were, the this, this, this storyline, the, I don't know what you want to call this, the, the dream, the dream stream? 
the direction of the zeitgeist of this thing. <laughs> it's too clever for me, of course, like Twin Peaks, yes. probably. And yeah. It's too clever for everyone, I think. I, I don't, Maybe I can't so. see anybody's going to get this on the first viewing. Not and on the first viewing, no. I, this is my other objection to the movie is, you know, he's keeping us on the runway, I think, for repeat views, you know. DVD repeat views originally, you know, when he released this, cynical Hollywood ploy. Cynical Hollywood ploy. You know, he's condemned Hollywood, and then he's he's in the air traffic control, you know, charging these pilots as the viewers sixty dollars <laughs> to stay on the runway for an extra minute, kind of thing. Uh, and I don't like that. It's you can't get this in the first few. Nobody could, even with plot notes. I don't think so. Sorry, Rich, you were going to say. I was just going to point out, you know, one of those again, harking back to this allegorical reading of the film. Yeah. That that really weird bit where those guys are in the meeting in the studio and he spits his coffee out. Uh-huh. I think that's trying to say that the interpretation of that is that Hollywood doesn't want to wake up to the reality of the casting couch and the corruption and and, and so on, the sexual politics. Well done so- to Ricky Gervais of Golden Globes, uh, his recent sort of uh, hosting of it. He just called everybody in Hollywood out. Fabulous. <laughs> All right, Paul, so the plot gets what from you? Uh, I mean, it, it intrigued me for the first hour and a half. I was all on board. And then I just got really confused when reality kicked in. Slightly before reality kicked in, you know, I think plot. So it's going to have to be a seven because of that. It, Yeah, it is brilliant, but... It is brilliant, yeah. It It's sort of too much. It's sort of too much. It kind of kicks you out of the carriage, doesn't it? You know, you roll down the hill. But I can't not give it an eight. It's it, fair play. Yeah. It's too much. But Paul, you had a category that you thought we had to do. Yeah. Well, surrealism, obviously, mm. and neo noir. Yeah, a ten. I can't give it anything less than a ten. Uh, the the dreamscapes, the way he invokes the feelings of dreams, that weird kind of squeegee timelessness of them all. The weird inverted logic, the things that just appear in de- as details and suddenly become so true. Oh, brilliant. I, I, you can't fault it. Just amazing Lynch moments. Yeah, a, a dream on film. Yep, amazing. Brilliant. Um, I didn't, I'll give it a nine. I'm not going to go over it. Yeah. But a nine is good. Okay, so my final category has to be this, and that is viewer accessibility. <laughs> the fact. You know, there is no digest at all. There's little exposition afterwards, after his assets to become dynamically involved in thinking about what happened. Uh, leaving it as this unspoken open slate, I think is just too hostile to a viewer. And so I have to really score it down on a four for this. I'm sorry. You could watch it on a very superficial <sighs> level, on a very Hollywood level. What would you get? You're right for the first hour and a half. I think the last hour just kind of on a superficial level or a level of understanding that I was able to bring to it, it just falls to pieces. It becomes really trudgy and difficult an hour hour and a half in. You'd enjoy it. It would seem like a sexy neo-noir Hollywood mystery thing. It doesn't make sense. (laughs) And then you end up yeah in a a theatre with someone going silencio. That's the last scene of the movie, remember? Is the the woman in the gallery thing on the in the box with the blue hair, who, and she just oh. says, "Silencio." So I mean, it's a love letter to Hollywood. I think it's a hate letter to Hollywood. Also, I was reminded of two things, like the Swans, like sort of uh, post Nine Inch Nails, sort of goth, goth industrial grunge artists. The Swans, brilliant band. And they had a line about some, she's got a celebrity lifestyle, the self-reflected image of a narcotized mind. Reminded of another phrase, which is that Hollywood is the self-distilled image of the reality that is the representation of America's dreams, which is a long sentence. But also, I think those two things, this movie really nails about Hollywood. It's the fact that it's just not real at all. And so in a sense, it is quite satisfying that the movie itself doesn't have real anchor points at all so for accessibility to conclude i'm going to give it a six yeah and we're going to do an overall score of (sighs) oh gosh wow i'm still going to give it an eight it's still an amazing movie i agree it is amazing it's a very strong movie it's very nice that david lynch is able to say these things and that 
I can only assume he is exactly not the kind of director who would be accused of Weinsteining it around. I'll give it an overall score of seven. Uh, but with the warning that obviously you're going to need to think really hard about this film. Paul, I, I think you've already leaked what movie we're going to have to watch next. <laughs> to, to various uh, people on our on our Discord channel. Yeah. So it has the attractive quality of being freely available on Amazon Prime. Whoa. Would you like to explain what it is? <laughs> no. Well, if you were hoping for a movie in which the Mandalorians, Pedro Pedro Pascal, and is that his name? Yeah. And um, Sophie Thatcher, who is in the book of Boba Fett, might star that's a science fiction film, then look no further than Prospect. Whoa. Prospect. Prospect on Amazon Prime. And that's going to be next week. I'm really looking forward to that one. Uh, Richard, you've already watched it, so don't tell me what you think. Oh, um, okay. I won't, my lips are sealed. There we go. Until then, it's goodbye from Paul. And it's goodbye from Richard. Ciao for now. Thank you.